Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Well, what a week it has been. What a tournament. And our thoughts turn inevitably to the retrospective after a feast of prime ministerial sport. It has, of course, been the rest is history prime ministerial World Cup. And Tom Holland and I, Dominic Sambrook, we're still reeling in shock, I think, from some of those results, aren't we, Tom? So much to talk about. So many matches that I think will live long in the memory. And I thought fascinating, not just for the kind of individual matches, but for the light that it shone on the whole field of prime ministerial sport, the reputations. (laughs) Are we going to do the whole podcast like this? Are we going (laughs) to... Well, the Saints okay, and well, Greavesy well, of history. Well, well, Dominic. Okay. Well, well, well. That depends, doesn't it, Dominic? Because that depends on whether you think that organising British prime ministers into uh, a a fake World Cup and then having people vote on them on Twitter yeah. is the best way to evaluate their reputations. Do, you, do you think it is? Um, well, it's a way. Um, uh, well. You're never comparing like with like, are you? I mean, you're never comparing like with like anyway. So I don't think it's, of course, it's a ludicrous exercise, but arguably it's no more ludicrous than all the other exercises that are done comparing, you know, to Robert Walpole and okay. Clement Attlee or, or whatever. So, you know what? It was fun. I thought it was fun and it was revealing about a particular demographic, i.e. our listeners, and what they think of our prime ministerial history. So I did learn. I actually did learn from it. Didn't you? Okay. Yeah, I did. And for the benefit of those who, who aren't on Twitter and aren't aware of what we're talking about, which may well be a, a sizable number of people who are listening to this, yeah. um, we organized a, a, a tournament, a kind of knockout tournament. Um, so going, we had uh, best of 16, quarterfinals, semifinals, final to find out who the most popular British prime minister was, um, the prime minister that, that, that people who listen to this podcast and who follow it on Twitter, um, chose as the greatest British prime minister. Um, and Dominic, you, you you selected the 16 prime ministers didn't you yes and you, so you had- seeded them so um we had um eight seeds who were who were they they was churchill was top seed i think so it was right? churchill um walpole disraeli gladstone pitt the younger attlee lloyd george and thatcher Right. So they so so they were the eight, and then the other eight were And the other eight were Lord Salisbury, um, Tony Blair, Viscount Palmerston, Pitt the Elder. So Pitt the Younger had was seeded, but Pitt the Elder not. Lord Liverpool, um, H. H. Asquith, uh Sir Robert Peel, and Harold Wilson, who was inserted at the last minute at the producer's request, because the producer thought there were insufficient labour names in the 16 and he wanted an extra person of course wilson got knocked out of the first hurdle so that proves what tony knows <laughs> about history and since he's not here for this recording there's nothing he can do about him <laughs> were there were there any uh, prime ministers you felt were unlucky not to make that 16 well i think i, I would have put stanley baldwin in but that's because probably because i'm a bit biased because i like stanley baldwin i think um when when I look at our list and I look at the tournament, I think it's very m- modern heavy. So I think the 18th century looks like a huge black hole, doesn't it? And we didn't have anybody between. I mean, we had Pitt the Elder, but and Walpole, after, 
and Walpole, but you know, there's all these names, sort of the Duke of Newcastle or something, the Earl of Butte. <laughs> but, but, but basically, like, nobody knows like, anything about, and we didn't. It's you know, there's a big hole. It's like the lists of kind of hundred great albums, isn't it? And it's always the most recent albums that kind yes, of pop exactly, up. Exactly, exactly. Possibly right. Sergeant Pepper lurking around at number three or something. Although, although Tom, my expectation, which was thatcher and blair would do very well for precisely that reason as they do well in polls nationally was not borne out and i think that's an interesting example of the difference between political enthusiasts or history enthusiasts and the general public because while we were doing this i was moved to look up the most recent survey have you seen this the most recent national poll done by YouGov in 2019 where they asked people to, to who was the best prime minister now who do you think people chose the majority Churchill. of the population. Churchill, 21%, I think, chose Churchill. Number two? Um, I've no idea. Uh, I don't know. Thatcher, 19%. Really? And then everybody else, I mean, literally everybody else was nowhere. Everybody else was kind of 4%, 5%. I think Tony Blair was 5%. Attlee was 4% or something like that. And, you know, everything. And that just shows how there's a difference between the public and our listeners actually or are you perhaps implying that people on left wing are p- people on twitter are more left wing than people who aren't well that's a shocking I mean, that's thought. been that's been <laughs> yeah i mean that will horrify some of our yes, listeners I perhaps think- but of course that's well chronicled isn't it that twitter tends to to skew to the left and i think you saw that a little bit in this in our exercise okay so so it's a bit like uh, england playing in mexico that it's 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 harder for certain players to compete at, on Twitter. I think there are so, there are definitely one or two players. I can think of one player in particular. <laughs> I think I, I don't think I think if you put Margaret Thatcher on a Twitter poll against anybody, animal, vegetable, or mineral, she's going to lose. Lynn, yeah, Bona Law, <laughs> yes. Lord North. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, should we should we look at the uh, the group matches and just do it to. to essentially we're not going to discuss the ins and outs of the match we're just going to talk about the the the, the contenders and how they shape up sure. so the first the first round was um disraeli against lord salisbury and uh, disraeli won that he, he got 79 percent of the vote so disraeli we we had a bit of a a difference on that because i wanted him as a, a seed and you didn't and i think that was the only the only thing that you you seeded to me was um, letting disraeli get in well, here you've got a really good example, I think, Tom, of the way we think about prime ministers in history. So, I mean, we've done tons of podcasts where we've talked about great men or greatness and individuals in history. But prime ministers are an interesting one because there's always a slight difference between, you know, the historical record and what historians think of them and their place in the public memory. So Disraeli, I think there is a there is a big difference between, you know, he wasn't prime minister that long. Um he, you know, he, he wasn't astoundingly popular at the time by any means, but he's left this enormous imprint on the popular imagination as a sort of Victorian prime minister, you know, as a sort of dandy, as the face of imperialism, as the face of kind of popular Toryism. And Queen Victoria and, loved him. And Queen Victoria loved him. And the sort of Gladstone-Disraeli rivalry. And Disraeli props up, and you know, we see him in films. Sort of somebody like Anthony Sher is always playing him in films about Queen Victoria. And it's all very jolly and everybody's pleased to see him. You know, ah, there's Disraeli. But Lord Salisbury was a much more substantial figure. He's prime minister for longer. He presided over, you know, if you're going to pick a moment when Britain was, was really was top nation, I think under Lord Salisbury probably be it. And Lord Salisbury 
epitomized a particular kind of Toryism that's very successful, kind of villa Toryism at the end of the 19th century. So the thing about Lord Salisbury, who is Prime Minister, oh, he's Prime Minister three times, isn't he? Um, yeah. And, and, and he's Prime Minister when, when the 19th century becomes the 20th century. So Exactly he is, yes. Um, his... He he said my favourite ever prime ministerial saying, which is whatever happens will be for the worse, and therefore it is in our interest that as little should happen as possible. And I guess that that's the um, people who don't like conservatives think that that's the essence of conservatism to stop yes. anything changing. But that's not tr- that's not what he did, is it? I mean, because basically no, Lord no, Salisbury no. does lay the foundations for the kind of twentieth century incarnation of the Conservative Party, which actually has been much more successful than either the liberals or or labor in in the 20th century yes so salisbury's exactly salisbury said a lot of reactionary things he looked very reactionary he kind of incarnated what he seemed to incarnate reactionary because he had a big beard yes is that what what you're saying yeah basically that's what i'm saying become prime minister then he would have been his beard was smaller i think no one can dispute that we've had no bearded prime minister since since lord salisbury so corbyn not becoming prime minister was a wasted opportunity on the the pogonophile front salisbury's also the first first prime minister to have electricity so he's got his house fully kitted out with electric with electric lights well ahead of almost you know most of his contemporaries and when you say his house well his 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 colossal yeah it's colossal (laughs) (laughs) but but salisbury well i mean it's, it's obviously ludicrous to make a case for Lord Salisbury because he's he's dead in terms of public opinion. Nobody really remembers Lord Salisbury other than historians and historical enthusiasts. But he's a much more substantial figure, I would argue, than Disraeli. Than yeah. Disraeli. But I guess that, that that kind of points out that part of what people are voting for in this is it, it's not just political achievements. It's the kind of... The, the 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 charge that you leave in the historical imagination exactly and disraeli yes. is a wit he's a novelist he's flamboyant and he's a contrast to gladstonian victorian moralism um exactly. I mean, he's, he's kind of dickens isn't he and who's yes, dickens, he's become prime minister yeah he's a, he's the he's the way station between dickens and lloyd george so yes, you know yes. that's and he also disraeli is the first so there's a huge tradition in britain i think of the mountebank prime minister um and we have one now uh, yes, I, you know um, <laughs> the british yeah. the british vote electorate loves a mountebank i think mountebank <laughs> is the word and disraeli yes. was a mountebank lloyd george was a mountebank tony blair was a bit of a mountebank and boris johnson is a mountebank definitely is yeah okay but i mean i think that 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 this is kind of interesting as a reminder that the the impression that um, people leave on the historical record is it extends beyond the academic texts that professional absolutely. I mean, you get this with the Roman emperors, don't you, Tom? Yeah, I mean, and you that's must a crucial this. part of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've we've talked about um, uh, Disraeli. Inevitably, we now come on to to Gladstone, who um, was drawn. <laughs> very amusingly against tony blair um and gladstone got he won 55 percent. so that was that was quite a tough battle actually before we talk about gladstone specifically i think maybe we should leave gladstone slightly later on because he's becomes a big star later in the tournament doesn't he okay so let's talk about tony blair Blair, it's blair bowing out that i think is so interesting and i think blair clearly blair on twitter is always going to face a big uphill battle because as you say twitter kind of leans to the left and blair is crippled by iraq but I think what's fascinating about Tony Blair as a prime ministerial character is he, he won three elections. He was obviously tremendously popular and tremendously effective as an electoral vote winner. But I can't think of many prime ministers whose reputation has sunk so precipitously after leaving office. 
you know, so Tony Blair is now the one prime minister who basically, you know, he, he shows his face in public. He goes to buy some milk at the corner shop and people shout at him about Iraq and say, oh, you ran off to America or you're a fraud and, and all that sort of thing. Well, but, but isn't it also crucially he wouldn't go and buy milk from a corner shop because he's so rich. And that's another aspect <laughs> of it. <laughs> well, I suppose so. I mean, but prime ministers are often rich when they leave office. I mean, Margaret yeah. Thatcher made a lot of money from speeches. But with yes, Blair, but, but there was something. you'd expect her to because she's, she, you know, she was all about making money. I mean, that was that was what it was all about. Whereas Tony Blair was, you know, I mean, he was supposedly a socialist, and yeah, well, yeah, he just kind of made a, and, and and people never like socialists making money. I think. No, and I suppose I, I just think he, it's an extraordinary. You know, one day someone will do an extraordinary biography of Tony Blair, and it will seem like this sort of Greek tragedy. The trajectory from the nineteen ninety seven things can only get better. People waving their little Union Jacks outside Number Ten to the sort of sense now that he's he's actually become for a lot of people, I think, almost a comic figure. Um, Not for it, me, Dominic. Well, I know you're I, a big. I, you are. You are. I his sort just of, have to listen to him, and I think, yeah, that's completely. Yeah, what's good? What good sense? But you see, you admire him f- for all the wrong reasons, though, don't you? I think he was the person who was behind the idea that the um, that the first vaccine, the second vaccine, should be delayed, which then got picked up by the government and became he he was single handedly I mean, single handedly well, responsible he, for that. You think, Tom? I think. I mean, I think he was he was the political figure who was pushing for that the hardest, and then got taken up. So I think he's still he's still out there doing good. Anyway, um, Blair got knocked out. Um, yeah. Leave Give it, it up. So we, Let it go. And Let that it go. set up that then set up the intriguing sem- quarterfinal round between Disraeli and Gladstone. I mean, absolutely one for the fans. That's yeah. what the tournament wanted and needed and got. So we'll come to that in due course. But the next, um, the next group match was uh, Winston Churchill, top seed. So we'll perhaps come on to Churchill later. He won by sixty-two percent against Viscount Palmerston. Um, I think my favourite Victorian Prime Minister. So he's Prime Minister um, 1855 to 8, 1859 to 65. He's a tremendous lad, isn't he? I think, yes. I think Palmerston would... I'm surprised he hasn't... I guess it's a sign that he's not better known, that he hasn't been totally cancelled. Because in the age of Me Too, I don't think he's a very... You know, he's not... You wouldn't go to, you know, you wouldn't die in a ditch for Viscount Palmerston's reputation, would you? He's the kind of guy who, well, who goes to stay with Queen Victoria and he bothers her, bothers her maids <laughs> and, you know, can't keep his hands to himself. I mean, that's one well, thing. Well, they that supposedly, wasn't, wasn't that because he went into the room thinking that it was someone who he'd been, it was a usual bedroom who, who would welcome yes, him? Yes, who would I th- welcome him. I think there was some control. I agree. It's, it, it doesn't look entirely good from, from, from today's perspective. But he did make one of the all-time great prime ministerial jokes to the French guy who, who said that if I were not a Frenchman, I would wish to be an Englishman, to which Palmerston wittily replied, if I were not an Englishman, I would wish to be an Englishman too. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. But of course, he is the Palmerston. Again, you've got the... the the um the slight gap between the historical record and the public image and insofar as palmerston has a public image it is the swashbuckling sort of aged but swashbuckling exponent of gumbo diplomacy because yes, he's 70 when he becomes prime minister so he's yeah. he's the oldest person to become prime minister and basically palmerston's thing you know the sort of don pacifico affair and all these sort of is that if somebody has even the slightest connection to britain the most tenuous claim to citizenship and, you know, their face is slapped in a bar in some sort of um, fly-bitten port. Palmerston will send a gunboat to blast the port. To blast the, the port. fly and strong arm of England. <laughs> yes, yeah, so he's, yeah. the, he's the kind of the embodiment of um, Victorian gunboat. Absolutely. Self-confidence is, yes. in the middle of the, of the 19th century. So yeah. it's not really surprising he lost. 
Um, no, I mean this was probably this is this wasn't his year. I think we can safely say this. <laughs> yes, this is this, this his isn't year. his moment. Okay, and and talking of, of flamboyant imperial expansion, the the next group round again. I mean, this was a classic one for the. I mean, the crowds loved this. this again, what they wanted, Pit the younger. <laughs> Against yes. Pitt the Elder, so son against yeah. father. Uh, Pitt yeah. the Younger won the, that seventy five percent. So Dominic, so 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 Pitt the Elder, Pitt the Younger. Who, tell us about them because people may not know about them. Right. So Pitt the Elder is um, he becomes Lord Chatham. He is uh, sort of mid to late eighteenth century. Um, Pitt the Elder is. Uh, I don't actually know much about Pitt the Elder, Tom. I was going to try and bluff it, and then I thought, I know his Trump's printed out a load of stuff, and he's got to come prepared, so I'll let you do it. <laughs> well, I, Pitt the Elder, I, I was actually backing. He was my favourite. He was the guy I wanted to win, because he was um, MP for Old Serum, which was one of the oh, right, yes, Salisbury. I think they yeah. had kind of five voters and about 50 sheep. Um, and he dominated the House of Commons. Um, Is that all you know about the sheep? That's all. <laughs> no, but he because he's he's basically he's not as prime minister, but he um, he's he's the guy who's essentially behind Britain's success in the Seven Years War. And we're yes, to yes, exactly. That's a podcast his... with Dan Snow about the Seven Years War in in due course. But he essentially is is the guy who who makes Britain a, a global imperial power. So again, you might well say that this year is not perhaps his year. He has a great line: "I know that I alone can save the country, and, and no one else can," or something like that, which Margaret Thatcher quotes in her memoirs saying she thought of Pitt the Elder when she became Prime Minister and then Pitt the Younger I mean Pitt the Younger is one of those few relatively few figures I think who is just a genuine colossus so I think Pitt the you know if you were if I was picking semi-finalists purely on performance I think Pitt the Younger would have as indeed he was um, would be a semi-finalist because he comes in at the end of the um, 18th century. He's what is he? 24 when he becomes prime minister. 24, and he's got so he's got young legs. So we've had Palmerston's the oldest. Yes, Pitt the younger is the youngest. And Pitt is he's the he's seen as the incarnation of anti-corruption after what's been a pretty corrupt period in British in British politics, really going back to Walpole. Um, he is modern. He he creates a series of coalitions to fight Napoleon. He's very anti-Jacobin, anti-French Revolution, sort of patriotic. Yeah, he 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 is, and he's the guy behind you know who 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 essentially kind of inspires Britain to fight against France um, through the revolutionary period, through the Napoleonic yeah. period. Um, dies shortly after the battles of Trafalgar and Austerlitz, but um, he he is a very committed abolitionist. So I think that that, yes. that that this is quite an important aspect of how prime ministers are seen at the moment is where they stood on issues of the empire and on slavery. Um, yeah, so because this came up again Pitt, and again on Twitter comments, again and it? again. Yeah, so so Pitt the Elder is definitely. I mean, he's he's a, he's a he's Brit- Mr. British Empire guy, and Pitt the Younger obviously holds it together by um, d- keeping Britain um, free from French invasion. But he is definitely on the side of angels when it comes to slavery. He's a friend of Wilberforce, big yeah. opponent of, of abolitionism. So perhaps that that explains why you know that, that might be a part of why he went as far as he did in the Wilberforce biopic. He's played by um, Benedict Cumberbatch. I don't know if you've seen it. Amazing Grace. Um, he's played by Benedict Cumberbatch. And, and actually, that's one of the few times, I mean, Pitt the Younger was was mocked in Black Adder. But Pitt the Younger, I mean, both Pitts have left very little mark on the kind of cultural imagination, haven't they? I mean, most you stop yeah. 100 people in the street in, in, in sort of um, in Sunderland. And how many of them can tell you about either of the Pitts? So... 
you know, they, they, they should loom larger than they do. And it, to me, it was a slight surprise, actually, that Pitt Younger got as far as he did in the tournament. I mean, maybe it's an anti-French vote to some extent. People sort of said, <laughs> but, you know, maybe. He, won, he won wars. Hurrah, hurrah. He's sort of um, basking in a bit of Nelson's reflected glory, I, I suspect. He, he also was famously prescribed port by his doctor and, and then yeah. became addicted to it. Um, yeah. And apparently, I learned yes, yesterday, somebody on Twitter told me that um, the, uh, the, the doctor who prescribed the port to him that his son then succeeded Pitt as Prime Minister. So Lord Ornington, yeah. Was obviously yeah. playing the long game there. So, yes. <laughs> so maybe he'll feature in the next the, in next year's uh, World Cup. Who knows? All right. Well, we've done four of the first round matches. Coming up after the break, we have the eventual champion and we have some absolute titans of the game, Tom. Lloyd George, Walpole, Asquith, and of course, Margaret Thatcher. So join us after the break for these t- these colossal contenders. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. And we are, of course, talking about the Prime Minister's World Cup. Um, is the eventual winner on this side of the draw? Well, time will tell. Let's start with um, with this glamour tie, Tom Holland. Um, Clement Attlee versus Liverpool, Lord Liverpool. Who did you fancy yeah. from the beginning in this one? <laughs> well, well, I, uh, I, I, I went for Clement Attlee, who... I thought was going to win and indeed did win by the thumping margin of 81%. I mean, that was the largest margin of victory. And I yeah. think that's probably because most people have no idea who Lord Liverpool is. Um, yes. So he got a really, because I, I rather embarrassingly thought that he, he was prime minister during the, um, during the Crimean war, which was of course Aberdeen. Yeah. <laughs> 
You basically so got, you got your cities mixed up, didn't you? Um, I did. So I Lord did. Liverpool is the sort of ultra-reactionary figure, really. He's the end of the Napoleonic Wars and into the 1820s. His prime minister, a ridiculously long time. And he's um, Mr. Peterloo, isn't he? So that, that wouldn't is. make him popular with people on Twitter at all. No, I, I kind of, now that I look at that, I wonder whether we included him in the seeds purely on the basis of longevity rather than any reasonable well, prospect of victory. Didn't you say that he was the first Prime Minister to wear trousers? He was. He was the first Prime Minister to wear trousers. I think that's reasonable. And also, he's the, only, <laughs> he's the only Prime Minister to have a London railway station named after him. Liverpool Street. Is that right? Yeah. That's a, that's a yeah. very good fact. Yes. Because, yeah. of course, Liverpool Street, you can't go to Liverpool from Liverpool Street. Um, no, it's named after Lord Liverpool. Yeah. And obviously, Peter Lou. So he's one of these people. You, yes. In, in the long run, people will only ever know one thing about him. And that will be Peter. So we should Lou. just say, I realise that we haven't said, he, he, so he was Prime Minister 1812 to 1827. I mean, that's a long Such stretch. Such a long time. Such a long yeah. stretch. Um, but obviously in a slightly pre-democratic era, um, you know, he's head of this sort of relatively aristocratic cabal that's running the country and he just sticks at it. Um, well, and I, yeah, the argument in, in his favour is stability, I suppose. It's interesting that, um, that that his go- I mean his government is is um wildly unpopular with a lot of very famous poets so Byron yes. Shelley and so on who react very 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 strongly against Peterloo and all that um but they never actually target Liverpool they're always going after Castlereagh who's foreign secretary at the time and this uh, I think I think it's slightly slightly um colourless Lord Liverpool is yeah. one of these prime ministers who's slightly colourless yeah. I mean actually in that sense the Attlee matchup is not such a bad matchup because they both yeah. are less well known in some ways than some of the characters in their governments yeah okay yeah so that's great punditry there <laughs> I like that <laughs> really like that that's that's really good you think I've got a career um, and, in this kind of thing and and talking of punditry uh, we now move on to um definitely one of the the kind of star performers in the uh, in in the tournament who didn't go beyond this round uh, and that was margaret thatcher yeah who was one of the seeds she was up against herbert henry asquith uh, who was prime minister from what is he 1908 to 1916 um and who led us into the first world war led us is- into the first world war yeah so uh asquith you know asquith i love asquith he's a great He's a great figure. Um, I'm very fond of Asquith. He won pretty comfortably, actually, 59% beating Thatcher. And our producer had said to it, me when this started, you know, if Thatcher wins, you're going to have to write your own scripts. Um, that, that suggests that he always writes the scripts, which, of course, you know, that's a bit <laughs> of a kind of a moot point. Um, but, uh, yeah, she was never in danger of winning the tournament, was she? I mean, she was never going to win a tournament like this. Um, and it's an interesting thing with Margaret Thatcher. It's not just that she's divisive, because I think to be a politician, by definition, is to be divisive, because to govern is to choose. And, you know, it's the fact that she the divisiveness has lingered so long and now defines her for a lot of people. And there are a few other prime ministers of whom that's true, I think. And it's extraordinary. And I think a lot of that, Tom. Perhaps Blair? Possibly, I mean, but I think it's more charged with Thatcher. I think it's much more charged. And I think personally, I think a lot of it is because she's a woman. And I think um, oh. I've always thought that a lot of it is very charged because of because she's a woman and because she's seen as a woman who 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 closed down a particular masculine way of life. And I think that adds a lot of the charge to it. Because Theresa May isn't regarded with any. I mean, people barely remember her at all, do they? 
No, people don't really remember. I mean, already you can sort of say Theresa, you know, you know that Theresa May will be a bit of a footnote in history, as Gordon Brown is, actually, or as James Callaghan is, or Sir Alec Douglas Hume. You know, there are some prime ministers, you know, Ted Heath was only prime minister for three and a half years, but he did a lot, and he was Mr. Europe. You know, Europe was his thing, and that defined him. What's going to define Mrs. May? I mean, failing to get Brexit. Failing to get yeah. Okay, so so Mrs. Thatcher lost. Um, Asquith, uh, of course, a Balliol man like yourself. Yeah, like myself. The yeah. superiority of a, of a Balliol man. So, <laughs> um, were you were you backing him? I guess I, I wanted him to. Well, I um, I I do like to see Asquith going far because I think he was utterly shafted by Lloyd George <laughs> in the First World War, and of course Asquith. Asquith is this fantastic character. You know, he's basically, when the First World War breaks out, he's busy bothering his daughter's best friend, Venetia Stanley, and sending her these endless letters. In fact, there's a hilarious moment about a week before the First World War breaks out. He's, he writes to Venetia Stanley, who's basically, what is she, about 25 years his junior or something, and says, this is the most awful torment I've ever known. I have to give up coming to see you at Country House weekend because I've got to deal with this bloody blasted war. war. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a lot of this sort of stuff as um you know during one of the battles of the western front he's spotted reading a book in the athenaeum while having his hair cut and there's all this sort of misbehavior uh, Law, the conservative leader when they went into um coalition went round to 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 talk to Asquith and he was kind of playing bridge with three young ladies yeah, and that's, that's that's kind of what um, I mean you you wouldn't think that this is the guy to, to, to beat a, a heavyweight champion like Thatcher but um, clearly is it yeah clearly picnicking the, reading classic books and having your I, hair cut during battles is obviously the way to go but I, I quite like the idea that somebody who sits around reading classic books beats someone who never did um, anyway, let's move on. So the next match was um, Sir Robert Walpole, the first Prime yeah. Minister, against uh, Peel. Uh, and Walpole won that 64%. Um, no, he didn't. He lost it. Wal- he lost it. Peel, Peel oh, won. Sorry, yes, yes. Sorry, Peel won. Yeah, Peel won. So Walpole was seeded. And yeah. I guess that you seeded him because he... I mean, he's the first Prime Minister. So he's the beginning of the 18th century. Um obviously a titanic figure yeah but i guess that perhaps people don't do people remember peel better than they remember walpole i mean i think people remember peel some people have done peel at school they've done the corn laws the repeal of the corn laws so basically when um peel the corn laws were a hugely sort of beloved pillar of of tory ideology um, protecting domestic farmers and far- keeping prices of food high. And uh, Peel repeals the Corn Laws, um, basically committing political suicide because he thinks that people in the cities should get cheap food from abroad. And also this is against the, the, the backdrop of the uh, of famine in Ireland as well, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, the other so, thing that he's... Exactly. And of course, the other thing he's remembered for is the police. So Bobby's you know, the Metropolitan Police. So Peel has two big things sort of in his favour that people remember. Now, Walpole, to me, Walpole should be a semi-finalist. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Walpole is in the top four because he founded the Office of Prime Minister at the beginning of the kind of Hanoverian succession. Um, Walpole establishes stability. He, he's Prime Minister for 21 years. But he's a massive pol- crook, isn't he? 
He is a crook, but I mean, who isn't a crook in 18th century politics? I mean, that's just a sort of lud- that's a that's that's yeah, a ludicrous but, but, no allegation. It isn't, even, even 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 by the standards of the early 18th century, he's regarded as a crook. Ah, but I think there's much. I mean, he keeps us out of lots of foreign wars. He has, you know, Britain is extremely stable. You know, by comparison to what's come before. I mean, you think what's come, if you're becoming prime minister in 1721, it's a new office. You've just got this German monarch over. It's against to whom the you're backdrop. speaking in Latin. Yes. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Yeah. And against the backdrop of in pretty, pretty much in living memory, you've had a revolution, you know, the glorious revolution. Um, one king being kicked out. You have the civil war lurking behind all that. And you have the rise of, you know, France as the great superpower and all this. And Walpole presides over this sort of, this, this golden age in some ways, um, for the new United Kingdom. You know, it's in Great Britain is a new country formed in 1707. Um, and all of that is a, is a tremendous achievement. And sure, he lined his pockets, but they all did. And, you know, I think yes. he should. I think he should be in the top. I think he should be two or three, to be honest, in British Prime. So Masters. he's he, but he's portrayed as um, Harriman in in the Beggar's Opera, and he's so yeah. cross about that that he then brings in the what is it, the Lord Chamberlain censoring plays. Yeah, I, I don't mind that. I'm quite authoritarian, as you know. So <laughs> I, I, I don't. I know. mean, he, he I, enshrines I, wiggery. I, he enshrines wiggishness as the absolute governing creed of 18th century Britain. And uh, he defines British politics in the 18th century. He had um, he had beautiful porcelain, and I've seen his porcelain. Do you know where I saw Have it? You? Uh, Do you know where it is? I can't possibly imagine. It's in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. It's Robert Walpole's. Yeah, so so um, he had an amazing art collection in Houghton Hall in uh, Norfolk, um, and then it all got sold to uh, Catherine the Great. That's a very interesting fact. Very interesting. And I think it went back to Houghton Hall um, a couple of years ago. And I spent all the time it was there. I was thinking, I must go and see it. I must go and see it. And then I completely forgot to go and see it. So uh, an opportunity wasted. But I had seen it in the Hermitage. So that was what a what a fun. great story there from uh, from TV. <laughs> um, uh, punditry. <laughs> we've got punditry. Robert okay. Peel had a Staffordshire accent. That's another good. Yeah, fact well, he's from Peel. So, so Peel is one of the last prime ministers, really, for a very long time, to have a non-RP um, accent. And there's a point at which, obviously, all prime ministers after that are going to public school, and they're all speaking the same way. But he's he's got a regional accent. Peel went to Harrow, where he was friends with Byron. Yeah, but obviously he kept. So his... I don't, obviously he didn't pick it up. And then he, get, so he gives a... the Tamworth Manifesto, doesn't he? Which is the first political manifesto in he does indeed in, in British history. So somebody we're talking about Gladstone earlier, and we'll come back to Gladstone in another podcast. But um, somebody was sharing a clip online there's a there's a recording of gladstone speaking and there's this claim that gladstone spoke with a liverpool accent and he doesn't i i he, <laughs> okay. he sounds nothing like okay. um you know uh, ricky tomlin's <laughs> imagine they possessions yes <laughs> yeah okay so that's walpole and peel um and then the final one was uh lloyd george against harold wilson you've already been read about harold wilson and given away the result um so no yeah, shot lloyd george won that 60 percent um yeah. maybe come to lloyd george when when we talk about the the quarterfinals but let's um, do wilson let's do wilson yeah let's do wilson so some people love wilson don't they some people love wilson i mean i've written a lot about harold wilson you know i basically written hundreds of thousands of words about harold wilson and i always think he would be a great person to have as your next door neighbor you know he's a why is that he's a nice guy he'd lend you his lawnmower um yeah. his, his, his 
He's good company. You know, you could go around and he'd get out the brandy bottle. He has a great knowledge. He'd be great on this podcast, actually, because he had a great knowledge of minutiae. He and Roy Jenkins, when Roy Jenkins was a chancellor, they bonded over their knowledge of railway timetables, which, for which they were both <laughs> enthusiasts. Wasn't, he was very young, wasn't he, when he became, he was about 10 or something when he became, yeah, when he became minister. president of the board of trade. That's um, right. Yeah. And he had this terrible mustache, which he grew in the 1940s to make himself appear, um, to make himself appear more mature. He had got supposedly the best degree in economics or something, the best mark in economics that Oxford had ever seen uh, when he was a, and and he was at Oxford in the thirties. I think it's the thirties at a time when, you know, everybody else was going to sort of communist meetings and, and, and cocktail parties. And, and Wilson was asked to go to one of these and he said, Oh no, thank you very much. I came here to work. And, uh, <laughs> and basically <laughs> man after your own heart. And all the, yes, exactly. And all his sort of, a lot of his labor, um, colleagues lo- actually looked down on him because they saw him as too middle brow. He read Agatha Christie. He played golf. He ate tin salmon rather than smoked. Um, he had these sort of very humdrum habits, which of course endeared him hugely to ordinary voters because people saw in Wilson somebody like themselves. I always think Wilson is a great model for the Labour Party. You know, if you pick somebody like Will, I mean, he's not that dissimilar from Attlee. Sort of small C conservative, patriotic, ordinary. His, he makes a virtue of his own ordinariness. And he, he goes out of his way to say it's the Tories who are extraordinary because they're rich and spoiled. And, and I'm just like you. I'm not, you know, he didn't make a, a great point of ideology. So when he commissioned Philip Ziegler, the biographer of Mountbatten, to be his, um, to be his authorized biographer, Ziegler said to him, you know, I'd love to do it, but there's one problem. I, I'm not a socialist. And Wilson said, Oh, don't worry. Neither am I. And that sort of thing, which basically a lot of his own activists held against him. I think that kind of thing endeared him to, to ordinary voters. Okay. I've got a question for you, which is, um, flagging up a podcast we're going to do on, we're going out on Thursday with Ben McIntyre about the history of espionage and spying. Yeah. Um, Wilson, thought that he was being bugged by mi5 didn't he he did particularly well really it's it's really really unclear so wilson does in his second time in office which is pretty shabby and i would say it's probably the worst period of prime ministerial leadership in our lifetimes uh 74 to 76 he does seem to have got very very paranoid he thought he was being bugged by the south africans by boss the south african spy agency and he also thinks you know there's lots south of african stories spy agency was called boss yeah unbelievably that's brilliant I mean, brilliant bureau of state security i think it is uh, goodness i've learned something uh and so the stories people like shirley williams tell these stories they say he would take them into the sort of the dining room or the cabinet room and he'd point to a picture of gladstone funnily enough and he'd say point to gladstone and he'd say that portrait is bugged they're watching me through gladstone or they're listening to me through gladstone or he'd take people into the toilets and say we can only talk here and you put on the taps all this sort of stuff i mean this actually this genuinely happened now some of his ministers thought this was demented and, um, and he did have he had dementia, didn't he, while he was in office? Well, it's unclear, Perhaps. but possibly in the final months. Certainly, his mind, his memory was not what it was. And he said as much to his aides, to Joe Haynes and Bernard Donoghue, who were his closest aides. He would say, "I don't really have anything to say. I can't remember about this. You know, I'm not what I was." So it's it's possible. I, I, were they um, were they systematically bugging him? I think not, but I think there were agents within it. I mean, MI5 was a pretty ramshackle, shabby 
arrange, I mean, very Lacarry-like actually in the seventies. And there were people like Peter Wright who wrote the book Spycatcher who were kind of paranoid, you know, slightly Daily Express-ish kind of. They thought yeah. Wilson was a red and they were kind of going around saying, I mean, when Ted Heath was asked about this, Ted Heath said, um, he said, basically, the people in MI5 are so mad that when they see somebody on the tube reading the Daily Mirror, they say, he must be a communist. We must we must have him followed. So clearly, across the political spectrum, there was a sense that MI5 was slightly out of control. Um, so Wilson was probably on to, to something. So MI5 will be pleased that, that Wilson was knocked out, losing yes. 60% yeah. to Lloyd George. Um, and I think that uh, we've that wraps up the, the group matches. Okay. Um, so so we we're left with the, the quarterfinals which was um extraordinary drama in the quarterfinals. So the quarterfinals are Peel against Pitt the Younger, Lloyd George against Attlee, Disraeli against Gladstone, Churchill against Asquith. We then had the semi-finals and then of course the final. Um and we will go through those various matches. We will look at um the Titans who were playing in those rounds. Um close-up analysis all the kind of sports punditry that you'd expect from someone like Dominic. Um, and we will uh, be putting that into um, a second Prime Ministerial World Cup podcast, which will be going out tomorrow. So um, that is it from us for now. We will follow through this thrilling sporting contest in tomorrow's podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.